The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. A hasty reversal from the UW Board of Regents secures funding withheld by Republicans over DEI. And Wisconsin leads the nation in lead pipes. One city plans to remove all of them in the next five years. I'm Frederica Freiber. Tonight on Here and Now, we hear from the UW Regents on the vote that split the board and from the students that will be impacted. The next in our series, hearing from legislative leaders. This week, Assembly Minority Leader Greta Neubauer. Nathan Denzine reports on Wausau's lead pipe replacement plan. And County Executive David Crowley on a new chapter for Milwaukee. It's Here and Now for December 15. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. The Universities of Wisconsin Board of Regents took a U-turn this week, voting 11 to 6 to approve a deal negotiated with Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss after a vote on the very same deal failed just days earlier. At stake was hundreds of millions of dollars for employee pay raises, building construction, and constraining programming related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We should know PBS Wisconsin is part of UW-Madison. Last Saturday, this board faced one of its toughest votes in memory. Saturday's vote of the UW Board of Regents failed 9 to 8, with all who voted against the deal being appointed or reappointed by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. The board had called three special meetings over several days this week, one of which was closed to the public and possibly violated notice requirements under the state's open meetings law. Some regents who changed their votes from no to yes did so with distress. Speaker Voss's definition of DEI is division, exclusion, and indoctrination. He has created and perpetuated this battle here in Wisconsin. We aren't walking around arguing about DEI. Those who voted no both times were resolute. I fear that acceptance of this tactic will only embolden its adherence, leading to a never-ending cycle of brinkmanship, simply to extract a politically motivated policy concession that they don't have the power to legislate. Some who voted yes both times still didn't like the deal. This deal, distasteful though it is, in my judgment, and on balance, gives us a better ability to serve not only those students, but all students. But others saw it necessary to compromise. Because I feel it's my fiduciary duty to put the needs of this system in front of any personal opinion I may hold. The vote ended with the resolution passing 11 to 6. The motion carries. The Legislative Black Caucus held a press conference condemning the move. It is discriminatory towards students, faculty, and staffs of color because their experiences should never have a price tag. Speaker Voss released a statement saying, quote, Our caucus objective has always been aimed at dismantling the bureaucracy and division related to DEI and reprioritizing our universities towards an emphasis on what matters, student success and achievement. Governor Tony Evers in his own statement said, quote, 
This vote today represents a vast overreach by a group of Republicans who've grown exceedingly comfortable overextending, manipulating, and abusing their power to control, subvert, and obstruct basic functions of government. That was Marissa Wojcik reporting. The deal to repurpose DEI positions, quote, disparages the prospect of belonging at our university. That's the message from UW student group Associated Students of Madison. Dominic Zapia from ASM joins us now. And thanks very much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. What is your further reaction to the UW Board of Regents approving the changes to D DEI in exchange for funding from the legislature? Yeah, it's, I think the feeling among students is we're disappointed and disheartened. Um, I, I don't think this was a surprise for us as much. I think we've kind of seen it coming, but the signal that sends to marginalized students on campus that there's not a place for them, that they don't have that sense of belonging, that this university isn't willing to put money to support those students is, um, it's frustrating. Yeah, so what's your um, response to Robin Voss Assembly Speaker Voss saying, quote, this is just the first step in what will be our continuing efforts to eliminate those cancerous DEI practices on UW campuses. Concerning, concerning. I think the language there of the first step is really what gets me. I, I think as students, we were concerned that this opens the door for the legislature to further pressure the university to put in whatever content they'd like, whatever curriculum. One of the parts of the deal is that the, um, the university will have a a chairship of conservative thought and allowing for the legislature to encroach on the university's freedom and this being the first step of that is is frustrating. Um, having decisions over policy, having decisions over how this university is structured is, um, is dangerous and it does not make me feel welcome knowing that they can so quickly intervene and will likely do so again. How are students helped by DEI efforts on this campus? Yeah. Um, it's a sense of belonging and a sense of welcoming. Be beyond being an ASM, I personally serve as a house fellow in the international learning community. And I know how val valuable it is to have specific DEI programs to support students, to have named staff members with specific focuses on these issues supporting students. Um, first, academics, having specialized tutoring for having um, belonging, creating events and community. That, those programs are so essential in making students feel like they can connect here in Wisconsin, right? A lot of students come to Madison and they feel they can connect to those communities easily, but DEI is essential in making sure that everyone has access to the Wisconsin idea and experience. So those positions are to be repurposed, according to Republican legislators, mm. towards student achievement. Um, given that there are some stark disparities in things like graduation rates among students of color, wouldn't that be a positive thing, kind of putting these all towards student achievement? Sure, sure. I, I can see where uh, Voss is coming from, but there's specific value in those DEI positions for those communities of students. I think that's missed with this, right? Um, equity isn't, it's about supporting students who have been historically marginalized and directing that towards everyone is gonna have some students fall through the cracks. Do you trust UW leaders that they hold as a core value their commitment to all students, including those from underrepresented communities? I think if they're really committed, then they should see the value of these DEI programs. I mean, it's all students is part of, part of recognizing that I serve all, I mean, for me personally, part of recognizing that I serve all students is that I serve a vast variety of communities and different communities require different supports, different um, resources and accessibilities. And I, I think to really be committed to those core values, you need to recognize that students aren't a monolith and students require different support that can only be done through DEI. 
how do you think this political shift will affect students from upper unrepresented communities as they consider whether to even attend UW-Madison or the yeah. UW at large? Yes, I, I think for students who are considering to come to UW, knowing that this university um, essentially traded program supporting them for a building and for staff raises, it's not a good sign. I can't imagine feeling welcomed here after what happened today. Um, and I, it would definitely impact my decision and I would not feel welcomed um, if I knew what they did. Given that you are a student leader and you, you represent all students and you um, serve uh, in the international community, does this feel personal, uh, do you think, for students of color? I think so. I think so. Um, there was an incident last spring uh, that happened with the university as well where um, a racist video came out and the university was unable to take action. I think it's further showing to students that this is not a place they feel welcomed. As a house fellow for my residents, I care about them deeply this is part of my role and um, I'm grateful to do. Knowing that students can't, students aren't invited to the table for these decisions, that students don't have a say in these things, I feel like I can't protect my community as a student on this campus and it, it hurts. Dominic Zapia, thanks very much. Thank you. Continuing our series with state legislative leaders, senior political reporter Zach Schultz spoke with Assembly Minority Leader Greta Neubauer looking back at 2023 and what she expects in the year to come. When you look back at 2023 and the year that was in the legislature, what stands out to you as the most important things that have happened in this building? It's been a very full year. Uh, of course, a top priority for our caucus is upholding Governor Evers' veto. The state assembly holds that ability by just two seats. And so it's been really important that we have been able to prevent Republicans from moving forward uh, a right-wing agenda that's really out of touch with the people of Wisconsin. We also have worked hard to find opportunities to pass bills where possible and, you know, of course, had extensive conversations about shared revenue and the Milwaukee Brewers and so many other important issues. And then there have been some good bills that have gotten done on housing and a number of other bipartisan priorities we remain focused on the long term and know that this body is not doing what the people of Wisconsin need for us to provide for working families, for us to make Wisconsin a place where everyone can thrive. So we continue that work into the coming year. One of the other big things from 2023 was the Supreme Court election and the changing and the balance of power there. Does that give you hope for the, the future of the Democratic Party in the Assembly, especially considering the redistricting case? Yes, absolutely. So we are seeing a case move forward in the Supreme Court right now, challenging Wisconsin's gerrymandered legislative maps. People around Wisconsin understand that when about 50% of the votes go to Democrats and that results in a third, roughly, of the seats in the state assembly and state senate, something is wrong. Wisconsin is classified as a democracy desert. And that means that the people of Wisconsin's priorities are just not reflected in the bills that move through this body. So we are, of course, hopeful that there will be fair maps that allow for really competitive elections in a bunch of seats in the state assembly and the state senate next year and think that that will mean that the people of Wisconsin are better represented in this building. Are you already starting to recruit candidates? Are you hearing from people who are 
maybe more interested with the idea of a different looking district than in years past. Yes, absolutely. It's a big part of my job, talking to potential candidates, calling folks and getting calls from people who are really excited to be part of the next election cycle. They know that it could be a year in which Democrats are fighting for the majority and they want to be part of that. So I've had fantastic conversations with folks from across the state who are ready to hit the ground running. What kind of a shift is that when you've gone from protect the veto to we may have a shot at the majority? Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> I feel like I'm shifting every day. Um, so last cycle, we were very focused on protecting our incumbents and making sure that the assembly held the governor's veto power. Unfortunately, the Senate, um, you know, is a Republican supermajority. And so you know, we are focused on building the infrastructure that we need to be able to compete in a lot of seats. The reality of the gerrymandered maps is that there have only been a few seats that are truly competitive in the last decade. And so now we could be looking at a situation in which we have a dozen, two dozen <laughs> seats that are really on the margins. And that both, of course, changes what election season looks like for us, but it also changes what happens in this building. Because right now, there are very few legislators sitting in this building who actually feel that they could lose their seats and who feel that they might need to adjust and listen to their constituents and do what the people of Wisconsin have asked them to do supporting policies like Medicaid expansion, like gun safety, like making appropriate investments in our public schools. And so I hope that fair maps will change what governance looks like in this body. And then, of course, we hope to pick up a whole lot of seats next year and be in a position to fight for the majority if there are fair maps. One of the big things coming to Wisconsin next year is the RNC convention in Milwaukee. Do you think that'll have an electoral impact in the fall, or is it strictly a tourism thing in the summer? It's a good question. Of course, parties choose where they have their conventions intentionally. Um, thankfully, we'll have a convention not too far away in Illinois, and I know many of us will be going over to, to visit and, and feel the energy going into the next election cycle. We are going to do everything we can to communicate the wins that Wisconsinites have because of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris being in office. And I'll just speak for my own district. We have uh, expanded broadband access through the Affordable Connectivity Program. There's a community health clinic moving forward because of policies passed by this administration. Of course, the Inflation Reduction Act having significant impacts on our infrastructure here in Wisconsin. So a convention's all good and well. It's fun for the, for the base, right, for the activists. But what's really important is that we communicate what the, the candidates stand for, right, and the impact of having them in office, what it means for people's real lives, their day to day. And we have a lot to talk about from the Biden-Harris administration. Do you want to see Donald Trump as the GOP nominee? Oh, that's playing with fire. <laughs> you know, I think um, that I feel really confident in, in President Biden. Again, I think there's just been so much good work that we have to talk about going into next year. And we know, of course, that Donald Trump is wildly out of touch with the realities facing Wisconsinites. Um, I think the same is true for the other <laughs> primary candidates. So it'll be interesting to see whoever comes through will be ready. And I think we're excited about 2024. All right. Thanks for your time. Thank you. 
The fortunes of Wisconsin's most populous city and county dramatically changed this year because of a local government funding deal passed in the state legislature, allowing an increase in the local sales tax in the city and county of Milwaukee. We talked with Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley earlier this week for his take on the new reality. County Executive Crowley, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. So in signing your 2024 budget, you called it a new day for Milwaukee County. H how so? Well, it is a new day for Milwaukee County, and that is because of our partnership with the city of Milwaukee and the Move Forward uh, MKE coalition that we were able to secure our local option sales tax. And the reason why this was a historic moment for Milwaukee County is for the past two decades, we've been operating within a deficit. And because of of the Wisconsin Act 12, uh, we, for the first time in over two decades, Milwaukee County now has a, a surplus, giving us the ability to really make investments in our entire community versus looking at what cuts will be least harmful to our community. So it is a new day for Milwaukee. So with this uh, first budget surplus in more than 20 years, what are your priorities? Well, we have a lot of different priorities for Milwaukee County. And so really what we're thinking about is how do we, one, continue to, to operate where we're going to reach our mission by achieving racial equity and becoming the healthiest county in the state of Wisconsin. One of the things that we were able to do was continue to invest into our affordable housing program on top of the $12 million that we invested from our ARPA funds. And this is going to allow us to build a more single family homes in the King Park neighborhood as well while also breaking ground on our first health and human service building that's gonna be dedicated to a Milwaukee County residents. It's allowed us to make sure that we can continue to have our Milwaukee County transit system up and running, making sure that this crucial and viable amenity is there for everyone, while also making sure that we can invest uh, in our Milwaukee uh, public park system. Uh, but that's also to say that this allows us to support our criminal justice uh, uh, system as well. When we think about our courts, our sheriff's departments and our jails, this allows us really to improve the quality of life. What remain uh, the biggest challenges uh, for Milwaukee County and, and how to address those going forward? That's a great question, Frederica. And when I think about Milwaukee County's uh, financial situation where it is a little bit better, we're still not out of the woods right now. And so, yes, we will have a budget surplus for the next two years, uh, but our operations does will see a, a deficit moving forward starting in about uh, 2027 uh, or 2026. And so it is my goal to continue to build upon the relationships uh, that we've created with the state of Wisconsin, as well as the federal government to bring back resources. Uh, but one infrastructure project that I would love to tackle in the next uh, upcoming years is really our, our public safety building. It's over 100 years old and it is the nerve system of our criminal justice system. And so if we don't want justice deferred and we wanna get our criminal justice up and running, removing the backlog, this is gonna be one of those critical issues that we tackle uh, in the near future. What does the $500 million Brewers Stadium funding package mean for Milwaukee? Well, when we think about the Milwaukee Brewers, one, this they are a huge cultural asset right here for southeastern Wisconsin and quite frankly, the state. But they are also an economic asset. And I'm proud that we were able to broker a deal uh, with the state legislature, with the governor's office as well, that not only protects our taxpayers right here within Milwaukee County, but make sure that we we keep the brewers right here uh, for many years to come. Uh, but what's very unique about this deal is that uh, while we're able to protect our taxpayers, we're able to get some financial flexibility for Milwaukee County 
uh, with that directly affects uh, Act 12 that was passed this summer. And so over the course of the next 27 years, uh, Markey County should be able to receive some financial flexibility to the tune of about uh, $229 million, which is dollars that gives us the opportunity to invest back into the community when we think about the amenities that I mentioned not too long ago, but again, to really improve the quality of life for Markey County residents and our visitors. As you know, the Republican convention promises to bring visibility and an economic boost uh, to Milwaukee. Uh, but as a Democrat, will it be difficult to host that Republican message? You know, as a Democrat, you know, I would have never thought that I would be a part of the pitch to bring the Republican National Convention right here to Milwaukee. Uh, but this isn't about red or blue when you think about partisan politics. This is really about the dollars that we need to be infused right here in our own community. And so I would say that my job is to make sure that this party goes off without a hitch and everybody has an opportunity to enjoy everything that we have to offer. This is the biggest promotion uh, that we're going to have outside of the Democratic National Convention or outside of a, a Bucks championship win. And so it is my hope that in the, in the future uh, that we'll be able to, to bring more conferences, bring more things right back to our own community that allows us to, 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 to really benefit from the economic activity that has been happening throughout the years. All right. County Executive David Crowley, thanks very much. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure again. In environmental news, drinking water flows through 150,000 lead pipes in Wisconsin, affecting at least 92 communities. But the city of Wausau has a plan to remove all of its lead service lines from the street to the tap within five years. Here and now reporter Nathan Denzine has more. Every day, communities across Wisconsin get their drinking water from lead pipes. So lead exposure is dangerous to people of all ages, but pregnant women and young children are particularly at risk. Pregnant Anne Hirkatur is the lead and copper section manager at the Wisconsin DNR, where she works with local communities to identify and map lead pipes in Wisconsin. And there are plenty. Milwaukee is particularly well known for its lead pipes, but other towns and cities across the state are dealing with the issue too. We're talking about public health that um, we obviously care a lot about. And we're talking about just keeping people safe and healthy and you know, cultivating better trust in government. Wausau Mayor Katie Rosenberg recently announced an accelerated lead pipe replacement effort that aims to take all of the city's pipes out in five years. The issue has been a longtime concern. We kind of estimated that we had about 8,000 lead pipes. That's about one lead pipe for every five residents. And that isn't unusual in Wisconsin where data from the National Resource Defense Council estimates that Wisconsin has the most lead pipes per capita in the nation. Lead pipes are a primary source of lead in drinking water, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, accounting for about 20% of all lead poisoning. When water flows through the lead pipes, um, the pipes can corrode, and the lead in the pipes will can leach out into your drinking water. While most lead pipes have an inner coating of minerals that is built up over years of use, insulating water from the lead, that insulation is fragile. If the water's chemistry changes even slightly, that coating can be stripped away. Look no further than Flint, Michigan. When the city changed the source of its water in 2014, it stripped away the insulation on their pipes and released lead into the water supply. Lead is a toxin that can have serious health effects, including a decreased ability to pay attention, 
a decreased IQ, and underperformance in school. Small children are particular, also particularly at risk of speech and hearing issues, growth and development delays, as well as behavioral and cognitive issues. Most at risk? Infants. It's a particular risk to the infant because of the amount of liquid that they consume relative to their body size. But that doesn't mean adults are totally safe either. It can cause damage to heart and kidneys and brain, can cause high blood pressure, and it can also cause increased risk of cancer. It's critical. Um, it's just time. Uh, we've, we've been kind of taking a go at this for several years, maybe even a decade or two. Um, but now is the time. Um, we want safe water for everybody. Well, frankly, it was time decades ago. Tom Perez is a senior advisor to President Biden and the head of intergovernmental affairs at the White House. The science is clear. Lead, whether it's in drinking water, whether it's in paint, any ingestion of lead is potentially a killer. Rosenberg has been working with Perez and other federal officials to secure funding from Biden's American Rescue Plan Act, which released billions in funding for lead pipe replacement. Because we have money, um, a crazy amount of money uh, for the first time in, I mean, my generation. Wausau is set to receive $80 million in funding for their effort. That money will go towards construction costs and training efforts for local plumbers. We have people reaching out to us like, I'm a plumber, I want to do this. So we think that we'll be able to train and hire um, many people, which is also going to be a great benefit for the rest of the state. As more plumbers are trained, the number of pipes replaced will increase. Uh, we are starting with our 500 pipes next year, which is a huge increase over what we usually do between 20 and 40 a year. Well, the target for year one is 500 pipes. That number will double to 1,000 in 2025, an increase each successive year. Those numbers are realistic, the DNR's here Couture says, because a major barrier to lead pipe replacement has been lifted. It's a lot more difficult for the private side because typically the property owner is responsible for paying for that removal. But in Wausau... There is no cost to the homeowners. Because of how the funding is structured, private homeowners don't have to pay a dime. I went back and forth with a person who said, there's no way this is free. There's no way. You're going to put a lien on my property. You're going to force me to pay for it. You're going to tear up my yard. And I said, no, we're not allowed to based on this money that we're accepting. The cost to the homeowner are nothing. The benefits of good health are priceless. So while winter takes hold of the state, Wausau is already preparing for spring construction. For Here and Now, I'm Nathan Denzine in Wausau. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.